This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer, and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. You know, if you're expecting therefore that like a black teen is urban is sporty is Mm. cool what about the nerdy black kids Mm. what about you know the ones that aren't sporty what about the sporty white kids Mm. well you know it's what about sporty south asian it's just so many boxes and so Mm. one of the things for me as well working in an industry where often i walk into a set and i'm the only black person in the crew, it means a lot for the children of all colours and their parents to see me there. Over this series, you'll have heard me use the word resistance a lot. The Cambridge Dictionary describes resistance as the act of fighting against something that is attacking you or refusing to accept something, or a force that acts to stop the progress of something or make it slower. When I think about the multi-layered, multi-generational impact of racism, economically, socially, politically, physically, mentally, spiritually, at its core, I think it's to deny the very humanity of a person. When black people were literally dehumanized, three-fifths of a man or considered part of the flora and fauna. I think about some of the ways racism plays out in our Western modern society, How black people are portrayed in the media using images of our trauma or brutalization to repeatedly re-traumatize us so that we are either constantly in danger, dangerous or both. In other instances, we have to be exceptional in order to be acknowledged. So you'll hear monikers such as the first black person to or the only black person to. Then there's what I consider the most insidious form of racism, that phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations. This idea of what is expected of black people is lowered in order for us to succeed. It's patronising and it's infantilising. 
and I feel it plays out most overtly in popular culture, especially music, but then it's my industry, so I suppose it's where I look the most. And in all these different instances, black people are not the ones defining the terms or the rules of engagement. And so, when I think about my guest today, children's stylist, artist, blogger, DJ, lecturer, tech entrepreneur, wife, and mum of two, Evadne Davis, I realise her choice to normalise the supposedly ordinary is, particularly in this day and age, what I call a radical act of resistance. There's that word again. It really is. I feel like there should be an ongoing, like... um wildlife show narrative going when we walk down the street because we are such a rarity (laughs) to see you feel like an anomaly and I know we're not I know so many families like us but we're not the families that kind of get talked about We talk about Evadne's journey into kids' styling from studying fashion at London's famed Central St Martins and a career in PR And it was so funny because that was my goal and when I got there I hated it Um, And I knew within a week it wasn't for me. Um, I can only see now, you know, years later at the time, I didn't know how to articulate it. But I think there were lots of microaggressions. There Mm. were lots of um, expectations of where you fit into a mould of what kind of designer you should be. And as a black woman, they didn't know where to place me. We talk about the importance of play and fun and using your creative imagination when styling children. We talk about diverse representation of children in styling and how it impacts on how children see themselves and what they think is possible. You know, I want to see all kids wearing being ethereal and innocent Mm -hmm. and wearing a big floaty dress. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, these are the things you want to see. But in terms of why it matters, I think, yeah, this is where it starts because... If you start putting people into boxes in their childhood, by the time they get to adulthood, where is that freedom? We talk about raising her children to fully be themselves, how to have difficult yet age-appropriate conversations about race and racism. My kids deserve to have a childhood free Mm. from having these burdens, just like any other kid. Why should they have to worry about these things? Mm. But at the same time, when things would come up, we then have very frank conversations. So from the, the early years, it really was about not talking about racism, but filling them up with a sense of pride mm. and making that foundation a place of pride and mm. celebration for my daughter when she started nursery and said that she wanted to have long flowing hair like a real princess. Mm. It was then being like, right, <laughs> here's every single book on, you know, book and cartoon and Dolly, like literally the house is just like every week. We talk about the world of mum bloggers that according to Evadne is, I quote, absolutely nuts and why she wanted to set up her own blog, Mums That Slay. You know, we didn't all look the same. We weren't all like wearing Breton striped tops and living mm. in East London and <laughs> talking about how much gym we liked. Like there were mums who were covered with tats, who yeah. loved vintage, who were overweight, who were single mums, mm. black mums, Jewish mums, disabled mums, lesbian mums. Mm. And I was like, mums at Slay started as a hashtag for myself mm. because mm. I was like, I'm just doing my best and mm. I'm loving my life and I still have dreams for my life. It's really important for me to prioritise my self-care. 
We talk about the creative personality. We talk about the tech startup she launched with her husband during the pandemic, Musingo Bingo, an online music bingo game. I've played it a few times. It is really, really fun. Evadne is a bit of a hero of mine. As a friend, I see how she raises her kids, how she juggles all her different roles. It's her realness that inspires me. There's so much pretending and curating of our lives and it's not real. Evadne is honest when it's hard. She rejoices at the small everyday wins and I watch her raise two quirky, free, unburdened black children with her husband and it inspires me no end. The ordinary is, for me, extraordinary. Evadne Davis, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely honoured to be on this episode of your wonderful podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, I should say, I don't, you know, I don't even know. We know each other's a very, very long story for another time. But you are, you have your, what, what's one calls a multi-hyphenate. Multi-multi. Multi-multi, <laughs> stylist, blogger, lecturer, tech startup entrepreneur, DJ. I'd call you a DJ. Yeah, I'm getting used to that one. <laughs> uh, wife, mum, you do lots of things. But I want to start by saying the reason I asked you on the show, apart from you being superb and my friend, but this season of the podcast is really about creative ways to challenge racism or bring about social change. And I've watched you, and obviously over the years we've spoken about this, I have watched you bring about change in your your spheres of influence when it comes to anti-racism work. And and I was thinking about this a lot, but just about like the black family and normalizing a black family without drama, just a normal, happy black family. You, your husband, your two kids, that is in in unfortunately like a radical act of resistance it really is I feel like there should be an ongoing like um wildlife show narrative going when we walk down the street because we are such a rarity (laughs) to see you feel like an anomaly and I know we're not I know so many families like us but we're not the families that kind of get talked about Mm. Yeah, exactly. So um, we're going to talk about this a bit more, but I want to start from the beginning and find out, you know, how you got started. You went to, did a fashion degree at Central St. Martin's. You were in PR for years and then you pivoted into, um, you know, what you do now. And yeah, tell me how you got started. I think I've always been multi-hyphen, hyphen. That's just been my life. So from childhood, I was the drawer. But I was also always singing and always dancing. And I played the violin from the age of four Mm -hmm. until I started clubbing. Um, (laughs) And I've just been a lover of life. I find life so exciting. And so I, I take things that bring me excitement by both hands and just get stuck in and, and really enjoy digging into that and exploring it and it, you know, expressing many of the talents that I have but um at about the age of 13 I had like a pseudo portfolio of designs I used to watch the clothes show and so from that I kind of got an idea of fashion illustration and I remember going to my form tutor and going sir I really love fashion will you look at my designs 
And he looked at them and then a week later he came back and he gave me a copy of The Face magazine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was my first ever fashion magazine. Like I'd read like my mum's hair magazines, but I'd never read like, you know, The Face at the time. It had JK from Jamiroquai on the front cover. Mm -hmm. It had Versace inside. Versace at the time was still quite new. And I was like, what is this? This whole world of different subcultures and genres I want to do this and it talked about St Martin's and so from then I was like I'm going to be a fashion designer my brand is going to be called Evadne and I'm going to Central St Martin's Mm. and it all kind of happened um I did an art foundation at um Camberwell art school and then I went to Central St Martin's and did a fashion degree um and and it was so funny because that was my goal. And when I got there, I hated it. Mm. Um, and I knew within a week it wasn't for me. Um, I think what I can I can only see now, I, um, you know, years later at the time, I didn't know how to articulate it. But I think there were lots of microaggressions. There mm. were lots of um, expectations of where you fit into a mould of what kind of designer you should be. And as a black woman, they didn't know where to place me. I mean, if you think of fashion designers, you don't really think of black women. And you certainly didn't mm. in the Y2K time. So I had a tough time, to be honest. Mm. Um, and a year in New York, interning in my third year um, for a fashion designer kind of told me that I didn't want to do fashion design. Mm. Um, and so I kind of left not really knowing what direction to go in and and kind of fell into the world of PR which I loved it was exciting you're doing fashion shows um organizing events it was very it was fun you know like you're newly graduated you've got a paycheck you're getting paid to party and schmooze it was fun mm-hmm. um but you know a few years in and that was working for like luxury brands and then by then I was working at Marks and Spencer's I think if you're a creative especially as I had always been mm. um that it was kind of like a, a hole in me um and I wasn't doing anything creative I was mm. going to work and just coming home feeling I just didn't know who I was um mm. and just started kind of styling on the weekends for fun Mm -hmm. doing some test shoots um and yeah I had a really awful my last uh PR job was uh, Arcadia is that Philip Green Arcadia so just for if anyone's from you know out of the UK Philip Green is the top shop guy billionaire wasn't he and kind of things haven't ended well put it that way no and I was um PR for BHS so as you can imagine yeah and um the writing was kind of on the wall um that that was going to go under it was a really awful job and I knew then I said you know this isn't my life Mm. and um my husband had an opportunity to transfer to Canada um and with that I decided to just make a move and Mm. completely pivot into being a stylist um and I think there is something really great about moving to another country Mm -hmm. um because it gave me a a blank slate 
and mm-hmm. I didn't have any of the burdens or like the, the internal naysayers and real life naysayers saying, what are you doing? You mm-hmm. can't do this. Mm-hmm. I just showed up, introduced myself to people and just got on, got on with it. And within a few months, I was signed by an agency out there. Right. Um, and I was doing music videos and TV adverts and editorials. I was styling, like I loved it, absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. And I was being creative and, you know, yeah, I wasn't earning what I used to earn. I didn't have that security, but I was thriving. Mm. Um, And that's, yeah, that's how I got into um, styling to begin with. But then um, I had my first child out there. We decided to move back to the UK and I assumed that um, I would just be able to pick off pick up with this great styling career I'd been enjoying in Canada but I don't know how much things have changed now but um the the mentality of in in that industry of UK creatives are very protective of their own space right and so whereas in Canada and North America you kind of roll deep together as a crew you all mm. you know you feel confident in yourself so you feel like you can help each other um, there were a lot of shut, shut doors basically <laughs> when mm. I returned and it was a real battle. I felt quite um, disheartened. I think that's probably when we first met at that right. time, just at this crossroads of kind of like doing a bit of freelance PR again and hating mm. it all um, and knowing that I just had this talent. And a friend of mine worked at um, Living Etc. She was the star director there. Mm-hmm. She asked if she could um, have my son model for their big Christmas issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, sure. And I was like, hey, can I star the kids? Mm-hmm. And I styled the kids for that shoot and I haven't looked back. And that's how I fell into the world of kids fashion styling. Because living etc is the interiors, like the interiors. That's so interesting. I'd be interested to know, just backtrack a little bit, this thing about North America and Britain um, and how that thing of protectiveness is, I hear it across cross industries. Oh, really? Mm. And I can't work out if it's, uh, I mean, we should say, is it a London thing? this sort of crabs in a barrel, people are scared that if you, that there's like a scarcity mindset. So if you, if I give you a job, that means there isn't a job for me kind of thing. Possibly. I think you could be onto something there. Um, It is this, it comes out of a place of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because I am quite fearless, like even recently with Brexit, um, it's made it really complicated to receive parcels from Europe and send mm-hmm. things back. Obviously, as a stylist, I'm working with PRs all over Europe. And after my first attempt at doing a carnet and being, you know, sent VAT invoices and things, mm. I set up a I set up a, a group for UK kids fashion stylists that I knew. I said, "Hey guys, 
I'm really struggling here. Anyone else? Um, and I think people are a little bit like, well, we're all meant to be enemies. And I, I was mm. just like, well, I'm really, I know what I'm doing. I style how, how I style. I feel cool. And we've actually been helping each other out, lending, you know, when people have called things in, they'll say, oh, I've got loads of stuff from this brand. If anyone wants to borrow it for their shoots, here you go. Mm-hmm. And we're all carrying on. No one stopped working because of it. And mm. I think we feel probably safer and more confident mm. in ourselves together than if we were separate. I don't, I don't get that mentality um, mm. at all. Mm. Very frustrating. Mm. Well, it's like, it's like a, it's a double job because you're having to navigate the people and all of that as well as doing your job, you know. But I'd love to know a bit about how styling works with children, like small children. Yeah, it's, yeah. Your, I mean, I should say your stuff is so edgy. There are so, so much of the stuff I've seen that you do with kids. I'm just like, why is it not in adult sizes? There is just, it's so edgy. It's cool, but it still feels childlike. It's playful. It's quirky sometimes. I, I really, really, and you've done, you know, you've done big brands. You've done Bowden, Next, Shoe, Hackett. You've also done for the Observer magazine, Milk magazine, Bowden. I've said Bowden, but you know, they're not small brands and you've done stuff in, you know, in the States as well. Um, tell me a little bit about how it works particularly bit styling kids yeah it's interesting they always say don't work with kids um or animals and I've been on many shoots where I work with both (laughs) um I love working with kids Mm. I love it and I feel like it's possibly my personality maybe I'm a little bit mad but they revive me there is something Mm. about children that is so pure and refreshing I love spending time with them and I I just feel so grateful that I get to work with so many different kids whether it's babies I get to meet their parents their families Mm. right up to teens so for one I just love spending time with kids and I think increasingly it's becoming more and more popular to um, work in kids fashion Mm -hmm. and people think oh I work with adults I can just work with kids but it's different they're not Mm going to necessarily stand still they're moving (laughs) they've got personalities sometimes they're bored sometimes they have um, like personality disorders or you know Mm -hmm. they're ADHD or autistic and you're working with so many different things so it is um, a challenge you need to kind of um, think on your feet and 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 for me it's really about coming alongside them and and building a relationship with them mm-hmm. even before we get on the set so it's literally just building a connection there with them mm-hmm. um but for me in terms of because lots of people say that about the way I style I think possibly my background in adult you know like designing and mm-hmm. um and styling for adults but despite it all because my references are anything from like a Missy Elliott video I may have watched on the box mm-hmm. 20 years ago mm-hmm. to a movie I've just watched or an exhibition I've seen or watching how my kids wear their clothes. Mm. Um, but I really try to bring in the fact that it is children. And mm. so I take my mind to that place of like imagination and play. And I'm like, well, if they were doing this story, you know, I did one last year, which is still, I love, with a dog as well, <laughs> um, all about a little girl who's a little fashionista 
wanting to get out of lockdown. So she just has loads of backdrops of different far off places. But I was like, okay, well, she's wearing this coat. How does she stand? What is she going to want to do in it? And that's kind of how I pull things together in terms of colours. Or my, I did another one where I was just really feeling Jamiroquai. So as I was pulling my looks together, I was listening to Jamiroquai mm-hmm. and kind of almost embodying that story mm-hmm. as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, that's my process. And having, yeah, having fun with it. And there's always an element of like toughness, um, but definitely like imagination and just mm. a little bit zany, like mm. off. But that's mm. how kids think. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And it's so true. It's so true. Um, I- I'd like to talk a bit about representation in these spaces, because I was just sort of thinking of like catalogues when we were kids. and. There was a period where maybe it was sort of lots of blonde, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, blue-eyed children. Um, And then I remember the mixed-race kid thing. There was a lot of mixed-race children, you know, with the big hair. and, and And then I, but I've noticed slowly sort of it diversifying. Mm. Yeah. And so seeing dark skinned, black babies or Indian children or, you know, um, Southeast Asian children, not just sort of one type of child, but really a diverse, diverse looking children, even, even how, um, yeah, I would say diverse in the broadest, broadest sense, even how like, you know, you might have redheaded kids and quirky looking children, not always just like sweet, like, what what was the sort of stereotype stereotypical pretty um child it's really become broad and diverse you know sometimes we like a tooth missing and all of those things which I is... love a missing tooth or loads of freckles yes so so talk to me about representation and why it is important it's so important because this is where it all starts okay. this is how children are seeing themselves and i think and, and parents are seeing seeing the kids. And I think it is changing. There is still this thing where a mixed race kid will tick the box for all races, for mm-hmm. blackness, for every race. Um, mm. There's not enough South Asian kids. Mm. Um, there, you know, when... And when lots of um, dark-skinned black girls are used, that you know, it's very rare that they'll be able to have the hair in like cane rows. It has to be out, and it's getting that, emulating that kind of curl pattern that is almost mm. like a mixed race kid. Mm-hmm. It is getting better, um, you know, but it's still like you know, the black boys get booked for the sports, like you know, lady sports or whatever. But yeah. and, and you know, I want to see all kids wearing being ethereal and innocent mm. and wearing a big floaty dress. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, these are the things you want to see. But in terms of why it matters, I think, yeah, this is where it starts because you start putting, if you start putting people into boxes in their childhood, by the time they get to adulthood, where is that freedom? Mm. Where, you know, if you're expecting, therefore, that like a black teen is urban, is sporty, is mm. cool. What about the nerdy black kids? Mm. Mm. What about 
you know, the ones that aren't sporty? What about the sporty white kids? Mm. Well, you know, it's, what about sporty South Asian kids? It's just so many boxes. And so Mm. one of the things for me as well, working in an industry where often I walk into a set and I'm the only black person Mm. in the crew, it means a lot for the children of Mm. all colours and their parents to see me there. You know, because sometimes they're confused and they're like, am I working for the studio? Like, am I? With... You can see, like, there, there's a little bit of a quizzical thing, particularly coming from the model parents. They're like, where do you fit in this? And when they see that I am the stylist, that's a big deal. Um, so it's very important. Mm. That's so interesting. Do, do you think that? Black people, we even buy into how we are continually represented. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I mean, I remember someone messaged me and said that a picture I took of um, myself with the kids was really sweet, but they didn't understand why they thought that the trousers my son was wearing were girls' trousers. Like, why are they so wide-legged? Interesting. And... I was like, that's just how he flows. Like, that's his style. Yeah. He looks cool. Mm. <laughs> why, you know, and this was from a black man. Mm. Why does he have to look like, I don't know, why does he have to look one way? Mm. So I do think we um, put certain limitations on ourselves. And mm. sometimes, you know, I'll have parents say, oh, I never would have put my kid in this. Never would have thought of my kid looking like this. Mm. Um, and I'm kind of, Yeah, it makes me feel good to open eyes Mm. for everybody. Mm. Absolutely. And and I mean, you know, I I have to say, obviously, I know you, but I love the way you parent your children. It really is. It's like um, hashtag parent motherhood goals, whatever. You really have children that are free, that are curious, that are themselves. And, and it's just such a beautiful thing to uh, to witness. But the the thing that triggered me asking you to come on was something that you put on Instagram that your son said. So Marcus Rashford, the footballer, um, has this new book out called "You Are a Champion" that you've been reading with your son. And um, in one, I'm, I'm quoting you here, like what you put on the post. But one in one of the chapters, um, your son said. I don't need to be tough like my friends. I just need to be the best version of me that I can be. Yeah. And I just thought that was so beautiful because he's eight, isn't he? He's just turned nine. Oh, he's just and he's nine. reading it himself. That's So I was just saying to him, okay, because I'm really trying, we're at the stage now where I'm really trying to give him some independence and mm-hmm. responsibility. Mm-hmm. So he'll read these books and I'll say, okay, tell me about that chapter. Mm. Um, And yeah, so he just started reading the book and I was like, hey, so what do you think? What's it about? He said, this is what it's about. And I said, okay, and he was telling me, you know, what Marcus Rashford told him, you know, says about his childhood. I was like, well, how does that make you feel? Like, what, is there anything that you're like, okay. And he was like, yeah, I just need to be me, Mm. the best version of me. Um, And yeah, I was blown away. It was so beautiful to hear him saying things that 
I've only been learning <laughs> in the last few years. These kids, this generation alpha, I think mm. they are, mm. will just be like so incredible because mm. they know everything already. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, but it's also, they do, but it is also testament to you and how you and your husband parent that you you allow your kids to ask questions. Nothing is off limits. Um, they're curious. Again, like I say, you give them space. I, I'm remembering your daughter, who also happens to be my goddaughter, which I'm very, I'm co-god parent with another friend of ours, um, when she was talking about racism and and the things that just, just I, I think it was something that she observed, something about how black people have been called monkeys and how it made her feel. But I I mean, talk to me a little bit about how you talk to your kids about racism um, in a way that I feel like they haven't been burdened by it. That's it. And so talk to me a little bit about how you do that with them, how you and your husband do that. I feel like my kids are growing up in a different time. Um, and I'm not saying that it's less racist now. Mm. I think racism in the 80s, mm. you know, I grew up in Peckham <clears throat> and I went to primary school in pre-gentrified Islington. So mm. there were a few NF kids in my school. Uh, National Front. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so things were much more over and we'd have race wars in the, the playground and stuff. Oh, and, just shout things at each other. Um, so I didn't want my kids to grow up with those burdens, mm. but at the same time, they need to know. Mm. So for my husband and I, it really was very intentional about saying, well, my kids deserve to have a childhood free mm. from having these burdens, just like any other kid. Why should they have to worry about these things? Mm. But at the same time, when things would come up, mm we then have very frank conversations. So that's kind of how it's been. So from child, from the, the early years, it really was about not talking about racism, but filling them up with a sense of pride mm. and making that foundation a place of pride and mm. celebration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for my daughter, when she started nursery and said that she wanted to have long flowing hair like a real princess mm. it was then being like right <laughs> here's every single book on you know book and cartoon and dolly like literally the house was just like every week <laughs> um and just you know building her up in that way mm. but then as things have got older as they've got older it is having those conversations about mm. well this is why I don't want when someone says to you, what's your favourite animal? You can't say monkey. Mm. And this is why I'm going to tell you. Mm. Um, this is this is why, you know, this is slavery. This is where our family came from. We're Jamaican. And this is what what happened. And for them, actually, they're like, they sit, they think about it. They're like, okay. And they just think racist people are stupid because it is stupid. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. Um yeah, so it's been conversations like that. Mm. Thankfully, they, they've they not been on the receiving end of anything. Mm. Um, but I do have friends whose children have and mm. a little bit older. Mm. So it's just stealing them up for when they're going off to school by them, secondary school by themselves mm. and anything that may arise. So that, yeah, 
but it really comes from a place of pride. I grew up in a home where it was, you know, Bob Marley, Nelson Mandela, you know, Winnie Mandela, like everything. And mm. really Marcus Garvey, mm. uh, you know, my uncle was a raster. So it really was a real strong sense of pride. Mm. Um, and that's that's been the foundation for it all, really. I love it. And and did you, I don't know if, did you, when George Floyd was murdered, did you talk to them about any of that? Obviously, I know they wouldn't have seen the videos, but, you know, all the marches. Did you talk to them about any of that? We spoke about the marches. We didn't speak about George Floyd mm. when it happened. I just decided, no. And also, I think my husband and I were so, like so many people felt, it felt quite traumatic. Mm. It unearthed, like, almost ancestral pain as well. Mm. Um we were not strong enough to say that this happened, but we did talk about, you know, America and racism there and police brutality. We talked about, you know, racism here and why people do it and some of the ways that it manifests, but we didn't specifically say, this is what happened to a man called George Floyd just couldn't yeah and I understand that but but give me an example because I just love to know how you did this so when you talk about with your kids about police brutality give me an example perhaps of a conversation you have because obviously I also know that you use child appropriate language as well so give me an example of kind of a conversation that you might have together so I'm just trying to imagine I'll speak to you as if I was speaking to my son um in America, they have a real problem where the police there, some people in the police force, abuse their power and hurt or kill people mm-hmm. who are black. Mm-hmm. And they assume that they are bad people just because of the colour of their skin. Um, and, and, it, and it happens so often. And it's not what police are meant to do. That's not what they do. But there's some people there and it's a problem. Um, what do you think about that? Right. It's always what do you think? Because mm. I'm not just telling him stuff. I want, or either of them, I need them to then chew on that. Mm. And that's how the conversation starts. It has to be like a back and forth. Amazing. But I'd probably start it like that. And what, do, what would he say? What would your son say or your daughter say? My my son is like the male version of Oprah. So he gets, he's he's very empathetic and he would get really distressed at the injustice of that. Mm. Um, and just probably say that how wrong that is. And that's really bad. He might even kind of sniffle a bit. Mm. He, he really feels injustice deeply. Mm. Um, my daughter, <laughs> she's, yeah. She'd just quite succinctly just say that that was wrong mm. and how bad that is. Mm. Um, she's very no-nonsense and matter-of-fact. Mm. Uh, I reckon, God willing, in years to come, future protests, she'll be up there with the <laughs> megaphone right at the front. She'll be one of those ones. <laughs> she's a lot to say. She's got no room for um, 
any other way. I mean, she's she's very proud of her um, to be on the eco council at her school, Aww. and is very disappointed that she can't do it again next year. So she's <laughs> like, well, "What can I be a leader of now?" <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, that's so amazing. That's so amazing. I love it. As I record this, the world is watching the unfolding destruction of the nation of Afghanistan, the collapse of the Afghan government, the takeover of the Taliban, the undoing of 20 years of work trying to rebuild an already fragile nation, borders to other nations closed so that only the rich can leave and Biden's decision to withdraw US troops from Afghanistan. You may have heard me talk about the fact that I trained in human rights law and particularly in international law. And one of the things you learn is that the role of human rights is to enshrine in law pre-existing principles as truth. For example, because we all are part of the human race, we are all equal and all have inherent dignity and value. The law is then designed to uphold this truth and provide protection and recourse for people when these values are undermined. Article 3 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights states, I quote, Everyone has the right to life, liberty and security of person. What we know in reality, however, is that whilst these values may be true, every day, all around the world, we see them eroded. As I record this from the safety of my own home, I have no idea what it must feel like for the Afghan people. It's always easy to talk about things in abstract, intellectual terms, but these are real people with real lives, parents with real hopes and dreams for their children, who are literally running for their lives. In the midst of this humanitarian crisis, some are stepping up to offer their support to Afghan refugees. Airbnb.org has committed to offering free temporary housing to 20,000 Afghan refugees worldwide, the cost of which is funded through contributions to Airbnb.org from Airbnb and its co-founder, Brian Chesky, as well as donors to the Airbnb.org Refugee Fund. The announcement builds on Airbnb.org's work in this area with the creation of a $25 million refugee fund earlier this year. The fund serves to support refugees and asylum seekers worldwide, starting with programs run by non-profit partner organizations in the US and Central and South America. To find out how you can host a refugee through Airbnb.org, or maybe you can't be a host but you want to support housing for Afghan refugees, you can donate to Airbnb.org forward slash refugees. All details are in the podcast blurb. British Somali poet Warsan Shire has a beautiful poem called Home. You may have read quotes from it here and there. I'm going to read a few excerpts from it because she encapsulates the terror and the torment of the loss of home in such visceral language, but I recommend reading the whole thing. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbours running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains, beneath carriages. 
No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck, feeding on newspaper unless the miles travelled means something more than the journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. Let's let's talk about motherhood, mums that slay. Let's talk about that space. Um, I don't really know the mummy blogger world, but there is a show, um, there's a BBC show called Motherland. I love it. That is hilarious and will make you cringe. And it's all about what we call in London yummy mummies and middle-class mums that are all kind of in competition with each other. And then this one rogue stay-at-home dad. But it is hilarious. But but we've had conversations about this before, just about the mum blog world and how there are these weird dynamics and... Crazy. Like even sort of... I remember you made a, something that I want to talk about with you about... Um, I think was it was probably after the George Floyd murder and all this sort of yeah, racial reckoning and the the black everyone was doing the blacks blacked out Instagram screens and I remember you were saying a lot of this stuff was just tokenistic. It really you, was, yeah. So I want you to speak into that to uh, for me. Okay, so the mum influence world is absolutely nuts. <laughs> That's all I can say. And I, I don't know about any other influencer world, like mm. food. I'm sure mm-hmm. they're all just crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's it's quite concerning because they're, they're all mums. We're all mums. Yeah. Um, raising children. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I've seen people rise and fall, lots of implosions of marriages and personal relationships and sanity and, yeah, and, and rags to riches kind of thing. Um, but when I entered the space, um, I really just wanted to document my journey in my corner of motherhood. Mm. And because I was finding that I, in my personal world of like friends that I was making as a mum, there were also other women who had, they were having their babies, but still were ambitious and like mm-hmm. had dreams or, mm. um, you know, we didn't all look the same. We weren't all like wearing Breton striped tops and living mm. in East London and <laughs> talking about how much gym we liked. Like there were mums who were covered with tats, who yeah. loved vintage, who were overweight, who were single mums, mm. black mums, Jewish mums, disabled mums, lesbian mums. Mm. And I was like, mums at Slay started as a hashtag for myself mm. because mm. I was like, I'm just doing my best and mm. I'm loving my life and you know I I love fashion and I still have dreams for my life it's really important for me to prioritize my self-care and I hope you join me too and since then like that hashtag gets used thousands of times a day all around the world by mm. by mums and I love that but um yeah so just started blogging about that and you know the importance of how to do a date night if you haven't got any money 
mm-hmm. um, and you're stuck at home and you can't go out, leave the house, or mm-hmm. why, even though I was breastfeeding, I decided to splurge and buy really sexy silk breastfeeding underwear because I wanted to feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just different different things like that. Um, and I love it. And I've intentionally stayed on the periphery of the Instagram world because I didn't want to feel like my life had to be sponsored by particular brands. Mm. Um, And that's kind of where it's got to that any moment of the day, if I go to a coffee shop, oh, I could have got paid for this or will you give me this coffee so that I'll put you on my Instagram account and just, I just don't care enough about Mm. all of that stuff. I want the freedom to tell my story in my way. Mm. Um, So I've really, I enjoy it. I love the community. I do something called um, Dope Friday where I, you know, there was a time where everyone felt like if they didn't buy that Zara spotty dress, Mm. they weren't a cool mum. And I was Mm. saying, well, okay, I'm setting a theme for tropical how do you do tropical how do you wear gold Mm -hmm. how do you you bring your way because that's what's good Mm. um and I've really enjoyed it and this year me and the kids were in the M&S Mother's Day campaign well done and um yeah it was it was amazing to just like have all these messages of us on like billboards and we went up to the the main marble arts shop and like saw ourselves in the window and Mm. it was great it was really good and that whole campaign was about real mums quote unquote um with Holly Willoughby she's a real (laughs) mum but yeah it was like all non-celebs and then Holly um (laughs) but yeah so it's a lot of like sponsored by ad Mm. by and with George Floyd as I said before I felt that 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 it was traumatic and there have been many murders like this before and mm. since, sadly, mm. and yeah. injustices. I've been on protests in London when they were finding, um, discovering that there was a, a real um, active slave trade happening in Libya mm. uh, with um, black African slaves. Yeah. And I remember protesting that a few years ago, like no one, everyone's silent. Mm. and yet they will jump on certain bandwagons so Mm. with George Floyd it took maybe two weeks before a non-black and ally you know typical you're always their ally accounts were talking about what had happened and then suddenly everyone started doing black squares and it Mm. was like I thought okay well it's better than nothing Mm. um and I will say before actually I say anything um on what I did um a few weeks ago, I did a shoot and um, a seven-year-old boy was fascinated by the braids that I had. And mm. the braids that I'd done looked exactly like my locks underneath it. So mm. no one else noticed, no adult, no black families, but this little white boy, he was like, is that your hair? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, actually, no, it's braids. And he's like, I like it. It looks really great. It's like, how do you know my hair? And he sort of reached to touch it. And I didn't mind. I'm like, as I said, kids are innocent it wasn't a problem Mm. and that was that and then I got a message from his mum that night she was distressed she was apologetic I'm so sorry Mm. we had a conversation in the car about consent and touching her hair and you know I'm raising these white middle-class boys in a village and I want them to 
you know, grow up to have respect mm. for black people and all, you know. And I was like, okay, wow, this is like a year later and it has mm. seeped into normality. And that was really warming. Mm. But <laughs> back to um, mm. the black squares at the time, one of the most prevalent um, daddy bloggers at the time whose wife um, had been called out a couple of times over like racist actions, decided to do a series of stories about how he wanted to learn more about racism and mm. what could he do and here's some websites. And it really triggered me because... Mm. I was like, but you would know all of this because of your wife and all of these things. Mm. This is just very performative and this isn't the time for performing performative acts. This isn't about um, ticking boxes mm. and potentially getting new clients that you can't profit over something that mm. is so distressing. And I thought I'd calm down maybe, but I didn't. I was really <laughs> enraged. <laughs> and I'm not that political, Mums at Slay. It really is about slaying and fabulousness mm -hmm. but I just took to IGTV and recorded um a post mm -hmm. where I talked I called him out and it was very mm -hmm. liberating because I've never done anything like that mm -hmm. but it went viral right um and it actually caused like his downfall so to speak oh no <laughs> Awkward. What have you done, Evans? <laughs> what have I done? His livelihood was based on promoting shampoos and oh, coffee. No. But, um, you know, I, I, I spoke for my truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and I realised it really was performative because I, mm. there was no comment on it or uh, communication afterwards, you know, wanting to address or learn. And um, I think it was a real lesson there really that mm. it, and it exposed the kind of messy side of social media mm. um sometimes I wish that we could just go back to taking pictures of like our food mm. and over filtering like a glass of wine yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um rather than things being so curated but it was um yeah the world of mummy influences I I know I've heard that motherland the script writers do trawl through mummy instagrammers right. uh through the things that we tend to wear the kind of just all sorts of things as inspiration for that show and it is brilliant it is it's hilarious it, it's hilarious um that's really interesting. I, I, I kind of, it's now made me think about cancel culture, which I didn't really, I hadn't planned on talking about, but it's just interesting what happened to this person. Because obviously I, I know you, so I know you were not, you did not go to Instagram, IGTV to bring somebody down. No. You were there because you're like, this isn't, this is, people have to stop profiteering off, off black bodies. Yeah, basically. Basically. But I wonder, like, as is a broader question, I wonder whether seeing, like, it doesn't make me feel, I don't know, sorry, this is a side thing, but I don't know if you saw that terrible, um, I think there's that woman in Worcester who was racially abusing a doorman. Yes. I mean, it was horrendous. I mean, the things coming yeah. out of her mouth were horrendous. And now because of social media, people film things, blah, blah, blah. She got caught. She, um, her apology was not on apology. It was 
I'm not racist at all. I was really drunk. I have black co-workers and I have, um, I've also dated black men. That's, I love that one. I love that one too. That's hilarious. Um, which was an, a hollow apology. However, the fact that she's kind of, apparently she's got death threats. She's lost her job. That doesn't, I don't, that doesn't feel like justice to me. No. And so I wonder whether, um, whether, when things like this happen, what do we want to happen to, what do we want to happen? What do we want to change? Because I'm not sure cancelling people or destroying people, which of course you, we know you had nothing to do with that. It's just how social media is, whether that actually changes hearts and minds. Because I don't know if it does. Do you know what I mean? Do you think this man, for example, has changed his mind about how he thinks? Because I don't know. Do you see what I mean? Well, he, to be fair, he wasn't even chased off Instagram. He just never came back. Oh, really? So really, I think he cancelled himself. He does have another account that's just interiors and and trying to bring himself back. Um, But I think, I think what people want is, and, and is accountability, right? And for people to pull up their, you know, put on their big girl knickers and just say, you know what? I messed up and I want to learn. And mm. and normally that is enough. I don't mm. like cancel culture. I hate that idea of being banished mm. forever to the mm. nether regions. I really like to think that we can extend a bit more grace and for people to redeem themselves. Mm. Um, but there does need to be some time of reflection mm. and our whole lives don't have to be lived on. Instagram either. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, what people want to see is a pol- like reflection and, and growth. Mm. Um, at the same time, sometimes when people are cancelled, it's like a, it's almost like when you'd put a head on a stake. Mm. It's almost like a warning for other people. I know that's mm-hmm. awful, but you you learn, like you think of the, the bird watching. Karen last oh gosh the I'm Karen sure many New other York. people but I think uh, you don't want people to do it out of fear of being cancelled you want people mm. to not do it because they know it's wrong exactly that's, um, that's yeah. different exactly and also bird watching Karen apparently has sued her former employer so I don't know if she's learned anything but I don't think so yeah um I like to ask all my guests what lessons have you learned that we can learn from? Um, and I want you to respond in two ways because I started, so you can talk about the lesson you've learned that can be any lesson, but also I started the top of our conversation by saying, you know, you, for me, you normalize what a black family is. It, it's, it's, and when I say it's nothing special, I don't, of course it's special, but I think when we make normal things extraordinary, it's like it's some rare, like we're all rare birds. And I think normal family, black families should be normalized, you know? I agree. So I'd, I'd like you to tell me what you've learned within the context of that, of being a black family. And, you know, you said it's like people are bird watching you guys when you walk down the street. And if there is another lesson that you have learned, like a general one that you want to share with us.
Yeah, I think with my family, and certainly I use Mums at Slave for this, my activism isn't mm. standing on my soapbox mm. and talking about racism because mm. for me, I find that exhausting. And mm-hmm. so when I do it, it's normally because I've got to a point where it has to be done and it's normally after a time of anger. I've calmed down and I'm able to speak from a place of strength and just it's wisdom. So my activism is showing my life, is Mm. showing us, is showing us thriving. So when I say that I'm raising my kids to know themselves, to have that confidence, we have the art around, the culture, the music, the books that I give them, the experiences, it's about them knowing that they are allowed to thrive. Mm. I think a racist doesn't want to see black people thriving Mm. they don't want to see a a black family with two you know parents who have careers and dreams and are making things and kids who are just happy and giggling and playing in the sunshine Mm. and free and unburdened Mm. they hate to see that and yet that is my life Mm. um and it's great you know my son's got a new violin teacher um, and he's a white middle-class man and he's coming into our home Amazing. and teaching my son the violin. Mm. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So with a mum who used to play the violin. So I mm. practiced the violin with, do you see what I mean? Yeah. That's our activism. So that's really important for me to do that loudly and thrive, not showing off, but just mm. thriving very mm. loudly. I love it. Love it. And any other, I love it. And it's, it's you know, like I say, I know you and it's authentic. It really is not pretend. The life that you live is real. Um, ha- seeing the Instagram and behind the veil, I know yeah. that it, you know, it's, it's real. Um, is there anything else you want to share that you've learned that we can learn from? Yeah, I think um, if you'd asked me, like at the beginning of pandemic, of the pandemic, how I looked at my life. I remember someone saying to me, the problem is with you, Vadney, you just do too many things. You don't know what you want to do. Mm. And I think what I've realized being a multi-multi-hyphen person, mm. you know, I've added artists and I'm selling. I've got of commissions. Course. You know, so you're painting, isn't it? You're I'm painting. Your, yeah, I've done commissions. I'm, you know, selling lots of my prints. That actually you can, it's okay to be multi, multi hyphen. It's okay mm. to live a life where you do have many things that you're passionate about that you can earn money from. Mm-hmm. Um, because actually, I'm not doing too many things. I'm living a very Evadne life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is mm. this is my life, mm. and and I'm happier for it. Mm-hmm. To be fair, I love it. And you and your husband, who is a tech whiz, have also come up with just a dope game, Musingo Bingo. Tell us about that. I've I've played it a few times and it is jokes. It is fun. I love it. Tell us about that. Yeah. So for my first lockdown birthday, um, I he he secretly built me a musical bingo game that was online 
just for me to play on Zoom with my friends. And I could use my Spotify playlist, put my music together, whatever I wanted, and we could play. And like two o'clock in the morning, we went to bed. It was so much fun. And every, you know, people that came were like, when can we play? We want to do it again. You need to make this business. And we were like, nah, the pandemic's going to be over by the summer. Like, what what are we doing? Like, everyone's over Zoom, you know. And and then we thought, well, actually, let's do it. Like, we're going to go into business together. And it just blew up and you know there were corporate companies playing it there were people connecting with their families all over the UK you know people using it for weddings and kids parties we did a um a care home um party for you know their residents have dementia and Alzheimer's and you know music is so healing for people Mm -hmm. with that condition so it was you know we've yeah we've been in like the press have written about us it's just it's been mad and 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 the biggest thing for that it wasn't about making money it was about bringing joy it's Mm. such a dark time and you know zoom everyone had zoom fatigue but everyone (laughs) who played this I had zoom fatigue but everyone who played this game was just Mm. like that was so much fun I I'm laughing and also couples were playing it together couples you know we hear of marriages and and couples who are breaking up in lockdown people were getting it on after playing music well done they were feeling amorous and and (laughs) you know flames are being reignited as they actually had fun together doing something different in lockdown so yeah it's it's great and now it's like 2.0 and a game that can be played in the parks with your groups of 30 so it just yeah it keeps evolving it's it's fantastic it's really really fun which leads me perfectly onto my last question what music are you listening to yeah so I'm listening to a lot at the moment Mm -hmm. because I have just started um a radio I'm adding another oh yeah your radio show (laughs) I got asked to do a radio show um I thought why not Mm -hmm. um and so I started doing that it's called vibes and stuff and it was just all about how you know sharing how I use music as something Mm -hmm. that makes me dance or it can just soothe me and you know chill me out um and so I'm listening to all sorts of music for that Mm. um stuff from the past because I think nostalgic music is always Mm -hmm. really interesting because it just takes you places and a lot of new stuff um when I'm painting I have a playlist that's got a lot of like indie soul on it and Mm. jazz um I'm listening to a lot of Alpha Mist his new Mm -hmm. album great at the moment and we've got tickets to see him nice uh later on this year so like Alpha Mist her um, Robert Glasper, but a lot of kind of like DeBarge as well. Nice. <laughs> um, and now I'm back at the gym, a lot of kind of like grimy, filthy hip hop. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's funny because I was, I've listened, it's so, it's what, what I love about doing this podcast, particularly when I interview friends, is because obviously in our normal life, we don't interview each other, we chat. Hi. But it's so wonderful to to learn more about you and how you move through the world. But it's really reminded me of when people talk about heroes, it's always this idea that there's a superpower and superpowers um, sort of elevate a person 
And so for me, that's not what a real hero is. I always find that for me, heroes are people, they're, they're ordinary people that do extraordinary things. And the way you live your life, for me, you are a hero, you know? And I, there is so much power. I think, I think people need to have permission to be themselves. It's so liberating that they don't, that they mustn't, people mustn't feel like the only way their lives have meaning or value is if, I don't know, everybody knows who they are or they have loads of followers or they've done some crazy, crazy, extraordinary thing. But actually having a functioning, healthy family with well-adjusted, healthy, happy, thriving children you and your husband doing what you want to do with your lives and you have a marriage that is healthy. In this day and age, I'm sorry, that is miraculous. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and you do it with authenticity. You, you know, you really, really do. And, and for me, that's what a hero is. And I find you really inspiring. Um, hashtag relationship goals, hashtag parenting goals, hashtag black excellence. Oh my gosh, taking it off. Of all these things, but you know, um, it's a joy to behold and I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. And yeah, thanks so much, Vad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thank you so much to Evadne Davis. You can follow her on Instagram, Twitter, go to her website. Check out the amazing app, Musingo Bingo, buy some of her art, listen to her radio show, Vibes and Stuff. All details are in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at H-U-T-L underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag H-U-T-L or email us at contact H-U-T-L at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting holding up the ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, we're heading to Berlin, where we're talking about music, nature and climate change with composer Alexander Liebermann. When I read about nightingales, you know, Berlin is the city that has the most nightingales in Germany. Really? Yeah, more than any other place. And I grew up with those animals, listening to them in the early morning and in the evening. I didn't know that they spent half the year in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, like, so... From West Africa to Uganda, uh, these animals spent half the year there. And um, so it creates connections too, you know, that's mm-hmm. nice. Like presumably with maybe cultures, I don't think I have anything in common. We actually have this, as you said, you know, the element earth or mm-hmm. like nature um, in common. We do share the sounds of nightingales like together. And if that's not the most basic or the most uh, true connection there is, then I don't know. Until next time.